Hey, good morning, church. Welcome to LifePoint on this second Sunday of the COVID-19 crisis. I want to invite you to bow your head wherever you are and pray with me this morning before we get into God's Word. Father, thank you this morning for this beautiful sunny day you've given to us. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, your graciousness to us in Christ. We thank you that uh, we have homes to live in and roofs over our heads during this time. And Lord, this morning we want to lift up those who are being affected by the COVID-19 crisis very directly. We pray especially for the Mikesell family and others among us in our extended family and our relationships, people across our nation and around the world who are being affected negatively by this virus. And Lord, we just pray for your mercy. We pray for healing. We pray for restoration. We pray, Lord, this morning for our president and our governor and their administrations and health officials who are working hard across our country. Uh, to stem the crisis. We pray for those who have been put out of work uh, by this, and there may be more. And we pray, Lord, that we would be found faithful in caring for them and supporting them and their families during this time. Lord, we also want to lift up the Volkart family as they grieve the passing of the one that they loved so well. We pray for Nicole and DJ and Camilla, for Greg and Fran, for Kent, for Lacey, for Lindsay, and for Robert as they as they grieve Derek's passing. And Lord, we grieve too, and we grieve with them. Lord, thank you for your word that inspires and encourages us, instructs us. And we pray now that by your spirit you would come. And uh, wherever we are listening, that you would fill that place, those places, with your Holy Spirit. And that uh, this time together would be a time of instruction and of encouragement. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul wrote to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 5 of his second letter, As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. In our present series, Fulfilling Our Ministry 2020, Decisions for a New Decade, we're considering together what it will mean for us as a church to continue to fulfill our ministry in the next chapter of our life together as we move in a matter of weeks to our new campus here in Northeast Olympia. Over the past three messages in this series, I've shared with you what I think are the first three decisions we need to make individually and corporately as a church. And the first decision I believe we need to make is to work at our worship. And by that, I did not mean that the pastoral staff or elder board needs to work at our worship. I didn't mean that the worship band needs to work at our worship. What I meant is that each of us and all of us need to work at our worship. And the context for that comment is a statement I heard years ago. Someone observing the priorities of our present culture said, Our generation will be remembered as the first 
to worship our work, work at our play, and play at our worship. To worship our work, to work at our play, and to play at our worship. I'll let you reflect on that and decide whether you think it's true. We observe together from God's Word that worship is the intended vocation or calling of all creation, including and especially we humans. God longs for real worshipers. And we observe that worship is the attended lifestyle of every Christ follower, so that the corporate worship of the church isn't an interruption to the activity of our regular lives, or that not to be, but it is instead a gathering of people who have been and who will be actively worshiping God throughout the week. We also observe that the church is longing for real worship leaders, that the prerequisite for an authentic worship leader is that he or she is first and foremost an active worshiper of God. And then we looked at three attitudes that ought to characterize our approach to worship when we gather. The first is expectancy, anticipating as we come to worship that we'll have a genuine encounter with God, that we'll hear a word from God for our own lives. The second is reverence, because authentic worship focuses on the God of revelation, not the God of our own imagination. The third is relevance, that authentic worship communicates a word from God expressed in terms that are culturally comprehensible. And what I mean by that is that The language we use and the messages we attempt to communicate during a worship gathering ought to be equally understandable to those whom God has already drawn to himself as well as to those among us whom he may be in the process of drawing, that is, to believers and unbelievers alike. Two weeks ago, we examined the second decision for this new decade, which is that we will need to prioritize prayer. One way of thinking about the outcome of that priority is that people praying together will be a normal sight, a normal activity in our church. Not in our building only, but in the regular routines of our lives. Prayer is a conversation with God that you and I can have wherever we are. I shared with you seven characteristics of a praying church, specifically a church that prioritizes prayer, demonstrates a conscious dependency on God, experiences spiritual breakthroughs, has praying leaders, values corporate prayer, develops systems and processes to promote and sustain prayer, engages its community and the world through prayer, and never lacks for God's supply. I also shared with you my hope to appoint a prayer director for our church, a volunteer who possesses the relational and organizational skills to work with the pastors, elders, and leaders of our various ministries, to plan and implement strategies that promote the practice of prayer among people of all ages. I've, I've already received a couple of recommendations, but if that sounds like a challenge that you personally would like to explore, I would love to hear from you. And then last week I shared what I feel is the third major decision we need to make in this new decade, and that's that we will mobilize mission. Uh, We need to make it our goal that we will join God in the mission he's already on in our community and our world. And we saw from God's word that because the triune God is a missionary God, the Christian church must be a missionary church, and the individual Christian must be a missionary Christian. 
So in this new decade, and in all the decades to come until Christ returns, we need to adopt a missionary mindset. That is, we need to think like missionaries where we are. Our sense of identity has got to be that we are a community of believers in Jesus Christ, on mission together in and from Northeast Olympia, and from there to Thurston County, to Washington State, to the United States, and to the world. To that end, we will choose to be a serving church, making it our goal not competitively to be the best church in the city, but instead compassionately to be the best church for the city, meeting the real needs of real people in the name of Jesus. We choose to be a sharing church in order to help people in our lives, in our community, and in our world to find and to follow Jesus. And we choose to be a sending church equipping and sending people to evangelize our community and our world through church planting, missional partnerships within our community, and short and long-term missions. Well, that was a bit of a long introduction, but I wanted to give you a recap. If you missed any of the first three messages and would like to listen to them in their entirety, you can go to mylpclacy.com, click on Resources, and then on Sermons. And there you can listen directly or download the message to your personal device. This morning, then, I want to share with you the fourth decision that I believe God would have us make if we're going to fulfill our ministry, fully and faithfully accomplishing the work that he has appointed for us to accomplish in our generation. And that is that we will rethink relationships. Rethink relationships. It feels kind of weird that I'm talking today about rethinking our relationships in this historical moment when we can't even meet as a church, or for that matter, in our small groups, when we're mandated to practice things like social distancing. Who ever heard of that before? Sheltering in place, self-isolation, self-quarantine. But on the other hand, maybe this moment offers us a unique opportunity. Maybe it offers some time and some space to rethink and perhaps to reset a lot of things in our lives, including the values and priorities that pertain to our life as a church family. You know, one of the characteristics of churches that are transformational in the lives of their members and influential in their communities is a kind of relational intentionality. In other words, they've, they've created an environment that's conducive to the intentional development of deep meaningful, personal relationships. That shouldn't really surprise us because it's impossible to read the Bible and miss the fact that God calls us as his family to vital, loving, personal relationships. As an example, the New Testament is full of commands about how we are to relate to each other in the family of God. I wonder if you've ever heard all of the each others and one another's recited together. Well, you're about to. So here they are in sequence without the scripture references added. Be at peace with one another. Love each other. Love each other. Love each other. Love each other. Take delight in honoring each other. Live in harmony with each other. Don't pass judgment on one another. Build up each other, live in complete harmony with each other. Welcome one another, 
Accept each other. Teach each other. Greet each other. Live in harmony with each other. Help each other. Care for each other. Greet each other. Comfort one another. Encourage each other. Greet each other. Serve one another. Bear with one another. Be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Submit to one another. Agree wholeheartedly with each other. Bear with one another. Forgive each other. Teach and counsel each other. Abound in love for one another. Love one another. Encourage each other. Encourage each other. Build up one another. Live peacefully with each other. Do good to each other. Exhort one another. Stir up one another to love and good deeds. Look after each other. Keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Love one another. Keep on loving one another. Show hospitality to one another. Serve one another. Clothe yourselves with humility toward each other. Love one another, 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 love one another. And all God's people said, love one another. Do you think that just maybe relationships are a big deal to God? Do you think it's possible that God wants us to engage in vital relational community with each other? I do too. Kind of obvious, isn't it? Relationships, not programs, are the substance of the culture of a biblical church. And by the way, it's just as important to pursue relationships now, while we are apart from one another, as it is at any other time. Think about, during this time, how how you can practice the one another's. How can you greet each other? We can do all, a lot of these things by phone and online. Help each other. Care for each other. Comfort one another. Encourage each other. All of those things are incredibly important during this time. Well, there are four words around which I've organized what I'd like to share with you this morning, and I, I want to make this really uh, practical. And the first word is, Invite. Invite. I think that in this new decade, God would have us rethink the value of creating a culture of invitation that will pervade the life of our church. We need to become an inviting church once again. There are two short passages of Scripture that I think may establish a helpful pattern for us as we think about this together. The first is in the very first chapter of Luke's Gospel, Verses 43 to 46. This is during the time when Jesus was assembling what we would come to know as the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles. Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, 
Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Come and see. The second is at the close of Jesus' conversation with that Samaritan woman beside Jacob's well. It's recorded in John four twenty-eight to 30 that the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Each of the two scriptural accounts I just read have three dynamics in common. First, the invitations were extended by someone who had already had a personal encounter with Jesus that was so powerful that they just couldn't keep it to themselves. Philip had clearly become convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. The Samaritan woman may not have been quite there yet, but was clearly impacted by her conversation with him. And each of them felt compelled to share their experience with the people they knew and loved. Second, the invitations to come and see were accompanied by an anticipation that those who accepted the invitation might have an encounter with Christ that was similarly transformational. And third, the invitations are open-ended. The invitation is to come and see, to meet Jesus and to freely draw their own conclusions about who he is and how they will personally respond. You know, in so much of the material that I read about how to grow and develop a church, there's a repeated theme of invitation and a repeated statistic that 75 to 80% of Americans would accept an invitation to church if someone would just ask them. I don't know personally whether that number is accurate or not. But I do know this, that if they're never invited they'll never have the opportunity to meet Jesus. And still, what do you expect might happen if someone actually accepted your invitation to LifePoint? What do you think? Is it possible that they would be welcomed and well-loved by this community of believers? Is it possible that when they visit, they might have a personal encounter with Jesus? Is it possible that their encounter might be transformational in their lives? Is it possible that they might believe the gospel and be saved? What might happen if you invited someone from outside our church to join your life group? Might the same things happen? In the second chapter of Acts, we read an account of the dynamics in the earliest church. And in verse 47, we read that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We're not told precisely how that happened. The implication is that it was part of the outflow of their life together in Christ. But, But here's what we can be sure of. None of those who were saved and added to their number did so without someone saying, Come and see. Come and take the measure of Jesus. Come and be loved in his name. Come and draw your own conclusions about how you will choose to respond to him. If we're going to be a missional church, as we talked about last week, and if we're going to see our family members, friends, co-workers, and neighbors being saved, then we're going to have to commit ourselves to being a church that is fully given to inviting people to come and see. The second word is welcome. Welcome. 
It's no secret that we at LifePoint are committed to being a welcoming church. And that's why we work so hard to welcome people warmly as our guests. And that's why we have greeters, information center hosts and hostesses, good signage, great coffee, and more and more. And all of that is super important. And that value will continue to be demonstrated when we're we're finally able to meet again, which, by the way, will be in our newly remodeled building. Glory, hallelujah. One of the most frequent comments I receive from guests is that they've never visited a friendlier, more welcoming church than ours. And I never get tired of hearing that. But in our recent study of the book of Romans, we learned that the Greek word that in English is translated welcome means a lot more than a smile and a handshake at the door and a brochure and donut just inside the door. That certainly is important. But biblically speaking, to welcome someone means not only to allow them inside the door, but to take them to your heart, to welcome them into your life. It implies an intentional, comprehensive embrace of the individual, and in this case, inclusion in the community of believers. You see, here's the bottom line. When people come and see what we're all about, they're not just looking for a friendly church. They're looking for friends. They are asking the question, is this a place where I will be loved and valued? Not just for what I can do, but for who I am. Is this a place where my family members will be accepted and cared for? Can I or we become part of the relational fabric of this community? Sadly, the answer in most church communities is not as simple or obvious as it may seem. All too often, churches that think of themselves as friendly are, upon close examination, really only friendly to each other and to people who are very similar to them in their values, their appearance, their socioeconomic level, their education, their political persuasions, their racial origin, and and so on and so forth. One of the tests of our capacity to welcome people the way God's Word calls us to, the test of our capacity to really be the church Jesus had in mind, is whether we can intentionally and gladly make room for people who are quite different from us to genuinely value those differences, and to allow them to make their own unique contributions to our lives and to the culture and to the mission of our church. So to welcome someone who has been invited to come and see or who has just shown up and chosen to give us the opportunity to become their church is really to rethink what is required of us if we're going to intentionally include them in our lives individually and in the relational fabric of our community generally. And that brings me to the next word, which is connect, connect. We need to rethink how we strategize to help people actually make a relational connection in our church. You know, people will visit a church for all kinds of reasons. For example, the preaching, the youth ministry, the children's ministry, the proximity of their home to the church, and on and on. But there is one primary reason that they will stay, and that is 
that they have connected relationally at a meaningful level with at least three people in the church. That one reason makes it critically important that we are uber-intentional about inviting people into deeper relationships from the first day they walk through our doors. And I'm going to be honest, we haven't been near as effective at this as we need to be. So I'd like to take these next few minutes to propose some things, both new and old, that I believe we need to do to help people get connected beyond their first visit. And I'd really like to hear your responses to these ideas. I hope you might email me or text me your thoughts. The first is this, that every Sunday at the close of the service, I urge you to meet someone you don't know. Many of you actually do, and I'm asking you to continue doing that. Not every guest wants to be greeted. They're they're usually the ones sprinting toward the doors as soon as they're dismissed and sometimes even before. But many do hope to meet you. And remember, they're looking for friendships. But here's something more. Many of you go out to lunch after church on Sundays. Why not, invi- why not invite a guest or two to go with you? Maybe even buy their lunch? Get to know them? Or make an appointment to meet for coffee during the week? Secondly, we're going to continue our starting point dessert where people new to LifePoint can meet the pastors and eat some great food and receive answers to questions they have about our church. But we're going to experiment with hosting it, at least initially, at the church when our gatherings resume. Third, we're, we're going to continue offering life groups. But I'm going to let you in on another little secret, which is actually no secret at all. Not everybody wants to be a part of a life group. It's just not everybody's idea of a good time. Nevertheless, they might be willing to be part of another kind of group. For example, a, a ministry team offers a relational environment where people can be included and find a place of belonging and investment a service group that works together to provide a service to the church or the community is attractive to a lot of people. A special interest small group is attractive to many. You you might start a group for people who like to ride bicycles or motorcycles or who like to knit or quilt or fish or hunt or cook or bake or garden or cut firewood or read books. The possibilities are endless. And I'm asking some of you to consider starting that kind of group. Ask yourself, what do I like to do that others might like to do as well? And how can I also make it an environment for relational connection and spiritual growth and start a group around that? We will provide whatever help you need to be successful in that endeavor. We're also going to return to a regular schedule of big Sundays that are specially designed days throughout the year for each of us to invite guests when when we might have a special speaker or a guest musician, serve some great food, have some fun, and just enjoy each other. And our new campus will allow us many more opportunities for this kind of event. I want to ask every ministry leader who is hearing me right now to gather your team online now perhaps and in person later and engage the question, how can we get better and faster at connecting those whom we serve into meaningful relationships. I should also mention that Kathy Pruitt is giving leadership to an effort to develop a comprehensive plan for following up on our guests and helping them to get connected into relationships and a place of meaningful service that 
that uh, will tie all of this together. And I'm thankful for her willingness to serve our church in this way. Well, the fourth and final word is engage. And while we want to connect people relationally, we also want to do everything we can to help each one stay engaged in their walk of faith and obedience to God. The ultimate goal and purpose of the church is to make disciples who become active and reproductive followers of Jesus. And to that end, the first task for each of us is to intentionally create relational space in our lives. Jesus modeled this for us. He gave time and attention to a small group of people over an extended period of time. And they changed the world. The first disciples were made in a highly relational environment. To Peter and Andrew, he said, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. The process of discipleship was to take place in the context of followership. The outcome would be that they would become disciple makers themselves. In Mark 3.14, it's recorded that Jesus appointed 12 men, that he might be with them, that he might be with them, and that he might send them out to preach. And again, the process of discipleship took place in a relationally intense environment. In order to become a witness, they had to practice withness before they would be ready to be sent out to preach. They would need to spend those three amazing years up close and personal with Jesus. Unfortunately, most of us have lives that do not allow for any more relational space. If we looked at our lives like a Lego block, we'd find that every last peg is occupied. And that's why choosing to lead or participate in a small group or a one-to-one relationship for the purpose of cultivating someone's spiritual growth is so hard for many of us. And again, maybe this present time when many of us feel like our lives are on hold is an opportunity to take stock of the commitments of our lives and make decisions about how God would have us invest our time and efforts. We need each other. We need one another. Four words. Invite. Rethink the value of creating a culture of invitation that will pervade the life of our church. Be an active and intentional inviter. Welcome. Rethink the depth of welcome God intends us to extend, not just at the door, but all the way into our lives and throughout the relational fabric of our church. Connect. Rethink a practical plan for helping everyone to make meaningful relational connections in our church. And rethink your own connections as well. Engage. Rethink your commitments. Set aside relational space in your life to invest in someone else's spiritual growth. Well, that's it. I hope you have a great week. And I hope that you will consider this message and the the thoughts that it contained. And I hope that you'll share your thoughts back with me. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time together. Lord, thank you that your word speaks to us quite practically. 
And Lord, we want to be the kind of church that you choose to bless. And so we ask, Lord, that you would guide us, that you would teach us, that you would call us to deeper obedience, deeper practicality in our walk with you, deeper practicality in our service. Teach us, Lord, to rethink relationships and to reorder them according to the values and priorities of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forever. Amen. Have a great week.